It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. At 5 a.m. on July 2nd, 1779, a British colonel named Tarleton was hiding in the trees of a Connecticut forest. Behind him, 200 men crouched silently, waiting for the order to attack. Their prey were a few hundred feet away. It was a Continental Army encampment. The sleepy soldiers gathering around the morning fire were under the command of Major Benjamin Talmadge. Talmadge was one of General George Washington's right-hand men. His capture would make Tarleton famous and easily earn him a promotion. He turned to his men and silently raised his sword above his head. Then he swung the saber down, giving the signal to attack. The British raiders swiftly moved into the Patriot camp. Talmadge burst out of his tent, sword drawn, while his soldiers took up their muskets and fired. The shots and clanging swords got the attention of the local Patriot militia, who quickly joined the fray and flanked the British. This wasn't going as Tarleton had planned. He saw his window for escape closing and ordered a retreat. As his dragoons pulled back, they stole a dozen horses. The Continental soldiers cheered as the Redcoats vanished into the trees. Talmadge took stock of the damage they had left behind. Ten of his men were dead, and his personal horse was among those taken. Not bad, but then Talmadge's blood ran cold. He realized his saddlebags were still on his horse. The bags contained letters from General George Washington that named Patriot spies in New York City. Now, the British had those names and their locations. If they captured the New York agents, Washington's entire spy network could be compromised. And without the intelligence coming in from the British stronghold, the colonies would likely lose the war. This is Espionage, the podcast original exploring the missions of the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. Throughout the show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. I'm Carter Roy. You can find all episodes of Espionage and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Espionage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Espionage in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second and final episode on the Culper Ring, the network of spies commissioned by General George Washington during the American Revolution. Last week, we heard about the onset of the war and George Washington's early use of espionage techniques against the British. 
We also discussed the origins of his infamous spy network, the Culper Ring. This week, we'll hear about the codes and tactics the Culper Ring used to maintain complete secrecy in the midst of Britain's own spying efforts. We'll also hear about their vital mission to identify and capture America's most infamous traitor, Benedict Arnold, and the immense contributions the Ring made to the foundation of modern espionage. By the summer of 1779, the Culper Ring consisted of a network of spies from within New York City, across Long Island, and all the way to Connecticut. Major Benjamin Talmadge was proud of the spies under his purview. After Washington had put him in charge of Patriot espionage in New York, Talmadge had collected a group of men who were, besides their immense courage, quite ordinary. The Major was humbled and often in awe of the commitment of these civilians. The inner circle of the ring was comprised of four men. At the top, there was Washington, who had Talmadge to directly run the ring from his camp in Connecticut. Then there were Agent Samuel Culper, Sr., whose real name was Abraham Woodhull, and Samuel Culper, Jr., who went by the alias of Robert Townsend. Woodhull lived in the town of Setauket on Long Island and served as a stop for all intelligence coming out of the metropolis. Townsend was in New York City, living among the British. He and his contacts overheard gossip and struck up friendships with troops to elicit information on upcoming attacks. Though they were courageous men, Woodhull and Townsend were anxious spies, especially in the summer of 1779, when a single intercepted letter from Talmadge's saddlebag revealed part of his spy network in New York. On July 13, 1779, a company of British redcoats kicked down the door of George Higday, a poor working man that lived near the Bowery in New York City. Higday was arrested and hauled before General Clinton, the head of Britain's forces in the city. Clinton revealed that Higday had been named personally in an intercepted letter from George Washington. What Clinton didn't reveal was that Higday was the only spy named. He was the Redcoats' only lead into Washington's spy network, and not, it turned out, a particularly promising one. Higday was terrified of execution. He pleaded with the general for leniency, even going so far as to write a meandering and poorly spelled confession about his spying, but it became clear that the pitiful man hadn't provided any information to Washington and was merely in the initial stages of recruitment. He was hardly one of the clever culpers that had been a thorn in Clinton's side for over a year. The British general released Higday when he realized the poor man wouldn't be able to help bring down the spy ring. The damage to the ring was minimal, but Higday's capture put each of the culper ring spies on edge. Robert Townsend was even threatening to quit the ring. He wasn't willing to risk his storefront livelihood, much less his life, on another man's mistake. On May 4, 1780, Woodhull reported to Talmadge that Culper Jr. declined serving any longer. Trust was paramount among the Culper ring, and that trust had been broken by Talmadge's mistake. Even Washington was angry. In his opinion, Talmadge had been careless with his letters. 
even though it was Washington himself who had written Higday's name. Washington chastised his major and said, The loss of your papers shows how dangerous it is to keep papers of any consequence at an advanced post. I beg you will take care to guard against the like in the future. Talmadge couldn't very well keep sensitive espionage letters off the front lines. After all, they had to cross over from enemy territory to get to him. But he could find a way to make the letters more secure. So the Major set out to earn back his spy's trust by developing a complex cipher for all future communications. The U.S. Department of Defense considers a cipher any cryptographic system in which arbitrary symbols represent units of plain text in accordance with certain predetermined rules. But the Culper Ring cipher was one of the first ever created in the history of espionage and set a new standard for cryptography at the time. In Talmadge's cipher, he created a matrix of numbers that stood for specific words, locations, or names. For example, Talmadge became 721, Washington was 711, and New York, Long Island, and Setauket were 727, 728, and 729. Thus, a letter might read, 721 went to 728 to meet with 711. Without the cipher's key or solution book, the correspondence would be gibberish. Talmadge also went one step further and encoded commonly used words like meat, artillery, ship, Tory, and troops. Finally, to ensure that any word or date could be encrypted with the cipher, Talmadge created a very basic mixed alphabet key, where a letter or number was switched for another one. For example, the letter A might be written as T, and the number 1 would be written as 7. This way, specific dates would look like a random string of numbers and other words would be a jumble of letters. Washington was impressed with Talmadge's new code, but the cunning spymaster had a final security twist of his own. Invisible Ink The concept of invisible inks was nothing new. One commonly known method was to write in lemon juice, which would go on invisibly but appear when heated. The British Army even used this technique for its own sensitive communications, and Talmadge held many captured dispatches over a candle to reveal their contents. But Washington learned of a new invisible ink from John Jay, a New Yorker who received the recipe from his older brother, Sir James Jay, a loyalist physician. Washington soon found out what made Jay's ink so special. Unlike lemon juice, he wrote, Fire has no effect on it. A letter with trivial matters written in common ink may be superimposed over invisible intelligence, which cannot be discovered without the counterpart. The invisible chemical in the ink required another chemical, called a reagent, to render the writing visible. The problem was, both chemicals were exceptionally hard to produce, especially for an army general camped in a wintry forest. John Jay told Washington he did likely have the right ingredients at his camp. The ink and reagent could be made from chemicals used in medical supplies. But this presented Washington with a terrible dilemma. What was more important? The care of wounded soldiers in field hospitals 
or protecting spies and their espionage tactics. Washington chose his spies. He gave Jay permission to raid the hospital supply shipments for the chemicals needed to produce the invisible ink and reagent. Then, he had Talmadge distribute the chemicals amongst the Culper ring. The amount of ink provided to each spy was tiny, only a little vial's worth. Still, Washington had proved he was fully committed to keeping his spy network safe. This gave Robert Townsend some comfort, and he continued supplying information out of New York. Abraham Woodhull's nerves, on the other hand, were still wearing thin. He was convinced there were British spies everywhere waiting to find him out and arrest him. He refused to write any letters without the invisible ink and began to hoard the ink he had for fear of running out. On this irritated Washington, he finally wrote his frustration to Talmadge, saying, The ink I have sent for Woodhull at different times would have wrote fifty times what I have received from him. Though their letters were now protected with codes and secret ink, and the Culper Ring seemed to be operating much more securely than ever, Woodhull was still inexplicably nervous. He felt like he was in danger every day. And he was right. Britain had sent their own spymaster to New York to break the Culper Ring. His name was Major John Andre, and he had developed his own cipher for British communications. Thus, Andre kept his movements secret throughout 1780 as he hunted the Patriot spies, and then put his ultimate plan into action. Andre was trading intelligence with and planning the escape of the most notorious traitor in U.S. history, General Benedict Arnold. When Andre's mission was finally revealed, Washington and the entire Culper Ring would be left stunned and vulnerable. Up next, Washington spies uncover a terrible betrayal that puts their lives at risk. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1780, the Culper Ring was running its intelligence operations smoothly. Information was coming out of New York from Robert Townsend through Long Island via Abraham Woodhull and reaching Major Benjamin Talmadge and General George Washington in a timely fashion, all under cover of secret ink and ciphers. With the consistent intelligence coming from the ring, Washington was able to predict British troop movements and win more battles. The tide of war was turning in the colony's favor. But then, in early July, Townsend noticed an increase in British troops and armaments around New York City. The Redcoats seemed to be preparing for a significant operation, but the Ring had no actionable intelligence about their plan. Whatever the British were planning, it was happening under the utmost secrecy. Around the same time, 30-year-old British spymaster John Andre was dividing his time between writing coded letters and love poems. His letters were going to Philadelphia, and the love poems were being published in the Loyalist newspaper printed by 56-year-old James Rivington. 
Rivington was well known in New York for supporting British interests, and he very much supported Andre's creative pursuits. The young major was a romantic, and though Rivington's reputation was as a blustery, cantankerous old Tory, the older man enjoyed encouraging Andre. Major Andre had no reason to doubt Rivington's intentions, and the two quickly became friends. Then, Rivington introduced the major to his friend and neighbor, Robert Townsend, also known as Agent Samuel Culper, Jr. It was no accident. Rivington was a vital informant in the Culper Rings network. In addition to the newspaper he printed, Rivington ran a popular tavern frequented by Redcoats. He passed every piece of gossip or intel he collected in either pursuit to Townsend, or, as the case might be, every new British friend. Townsend was anxious to understand the increased British activity around the city, but Andre was cagey in person and careful with his work. He had his own cipher for British spies, and any intercepted letters Townsend had were incoherent without the cipher key. But one thing became obvious to Townsend. Andre had a mole placed high up in Washington's ranks. This revelation came on July 21, 1780. That morning, Robert Townsend reported an explosive bit of intelligence. Fifty British ships left New York around dawn, heading up the Long Island Sound to collect more Redcoat troops. And this sudden, massive troop movement was just the first step in a larger plan. The British were planning to ambush the French naval fleet arriving off Rhode Island. France had supported colonial independence and sent its armada to support the Continental Army. But Washington had kept their arrival date and location completely secret, known only to a select few high-ranking officers. But now the British somehow knew everything. Somebody had talked. Luckily, the weather turned foul that week, which delayed the British boats. That gave Washington enough time to rally his forces to Rhode Island and defend the French landing. But the British knew that too. One of Andre's spies reported the Continental Troop deployment to Rhode Island. The British ambush force, now facing bad weather and having lost the element of surprise, pulled back. The botched ambush made Washington suspicious, but he had no idea who the mole was, so he called upon his secret weapon, his spy ring. The most complex espionage network in history would help him suss out the traitor. The Culpers had a new mission. Find the mole. On August 3, 1780, Washington placed General Benedict Arnold in command of Fort West Point, arguably the most important strategic fort along the Hudson River. The fort was roughly 55 miles north of Manhattan and monitored all shipping traffic moving upriver. Whoever occupied the fort controlled access to the rest of New York and Connecticut. It was an immensely valuable bit of real estate. Benedict was a trusted officer and seemed to be the perfect choice to command it. He had been the leader of all rebel forces in Philadelphia and he'd been wounded in battle on the front lines. 
But Benedict had a grudge against Washington and the Continental Army. He had been passed over for promotions for years. Other officers received credit for his decisions, and to add insult to injury, the Congress had sent him a bill for missing funds he had used without providing receipts. Benedict felt accounting errors were beneath him, and furthermore, that his skills weren't being rewarded appropriately. So he wrote to a British merchant named Stansbury. Arnold knew Stansbury from his time in Philadelphia, but he also knew that the merchant was a cutout for the British spymaster, John Andre. According to the U.S. Department of Defense, a cutout is an intermediary or device used to obviate direct contact between members of a clandestine organization. In Benedict's case, Andre couldn't be seen with a Continental General, so he used Stansbury to carry their coded letters. This way, Andre could stay in New York, having drinks with Robert Townsend at James Rivington's tavern, while waiting on the next letter from Benedict. After Benedict took command of Fort West Point in August, he immediately restocked the fort with as many supplies as he could. He also set out to discover the names and locations of the local Patriot spies. He claimed he needed to know who the spies were so he could contact them directly about any impending attacks. But Benedict had an ulterior motive. He was actually gathering weapons, supplies, and intelligence to turn over to the Redcoats. By early September 1780, he was ready to defect. He wrote to Andre to set up a face-to-face -face meeting where Benedict would surrender the fort. Major John Andre let his friends Rivington and Townsend know he would be heading north for a few days. He claimed he needed some time outside the city, and the New York forests were beautiful this time of year. Townsend didn't think much of Andre's venture north until he noticed the increased activity around New York City's docks. The Redcoats seemed to be preparing their riverboats for an excursion. Crates of rations and weapons appeared along the docks, waiting for the order to load up. Townsend was concerned. He hadn't heard any rumors about an impending British attack, but the situation had changed practically overnight, and just when Andre left town. Townsend hastily wrote a new report for Talmadge in Washington, stating that some secret expedition is in contemplation. But the secret expedition wasn't just in contemplation. It was already underway. Andre's journey north up the Hudson River was no holiday. He was going to meet Benedict face to face, and then to lock down the surrender of West Point and lay out plans for Benedict's defection. Late in the night of September 21st, Andre got off a British barge anchored along the west bank of the Hudson River below the fort he was officially behind enemy lines. Andre met Benedict in a small cabin not far from the river. They looked over the fort blueprints and discussed the final surrender until nearly sunrise. The plan was a go. Andre collected the blueprints and his notes, folded them neatly, and tucked them into his boot. 
he had everything he needed to return to New York City and guide the British forces into West Point. Then, the men heard cannon fire. As the dawn light fell over the river, a Patriot artillery crew had spotted the British boat at anchor. They opened fire, driving the barge back downriver. Andre's ride home was gone. He was trapped in rebel territory, and worst of all, he was still wearing his British uniform with its obvious red coat. Andre was instantly anxious, but Benedict calmed his nerves and devised a plan to get the British spymaster back to the city safely. He told Andre he was now John Anderson, a traveling merchant. Benedict wrote a pass for this John Anderson to be left alone as he crossed through rebel checkpoints on the way to New York. The overland journey would be much longer than the riverboat trip, but it would get him home. Before he could leave, however, Benedict passed him a new set of clothes. Andre wasn't happy about this. His uniform was his protection. As a soldier, he would be a prisoner of war if he was caught. But if he were apprehended as a British agent in plain clothes, he would be hung as a spy. Benedict insisted. Changing clothes was the only way Andre would make it back to New York, even with a pass from a general. Andre reluctantly exchanged the red coat for a worn purple one and put on a civilian hat. He tucked the plans and notes into his boots and set out on the long journey back to New York City. The next day, September 23rd, Andre was stopped by a trio of rebel militiamen. One of the ragtag men was wearing an ancient British coat, though the red color had faded, Seeing the coat, Andre made the mistake of greeting them with, My lads, I hope you belong to our party. When the men identified themselves as patriots, Andre tried to backtrack, but it was too late. They examined his pass from Benedict, but it wasn't enough to allay their suspicions. They searched him thoroughly, including pulling off his boots and the carefully folded blueprints of Fort West Point tumbled to the ground. Andre was caught. No amount of storytelling could save him now. The militiamen hastily placed the so-called John Anderson under arrest and brought him to a nearby Continental Army encampment. Andre's heart thudded in his chest as Major Benjamin Talmadge appeared the next morning to question him. Andre knew the game was up, and he asked Talmadge to allow him, as a high-ranking British officer, to write a letter to Washington with a full confession. Talmadge agreed. Andre asked what would become of him. Talmadge looked the British spymaster square in the eye and said, I had a much-loved classmate by the name of Nathan Hale. Do you remember his story? Andre nodded, replying, He was hanged as a spy, but you surely do not consider his case and mine alike. Talmadge turned to leave. Over his shoulder, he said, Precisely similar, and similar will be your fate. 
Major John Andre was hung at noon on October 2nd, 1780. His last words were a simple plea to everyone watching to recall that he met his fate bravely. Talmadge was there to watch the British spy master swing, and he was impressed. He said, I cannot say enough of Andre's fortitude. I wish Benedict Arnold had been in his place. Because, of course, the Patriots now had all of Andre's papers. But Benedict was already on the run. While the culper ring had unveiled his betrayal and executed his handler, the traitor himself had escaped into the night. Now, Talmadge and the rest of Washington's spy network had a new mission. Revenge. They were going to find Benedict Arnold and bring him to justice. Up next, the culper ring hunts the greatest traitor in American history. Now, back to the story. In the autumn of 1780, Major Benjamin Talmadge was nervous. He couldn't be certain how much the British knew about the Culper Ring. The turncoat general, Benedict Arnold, had attempted to gather the names of spies throughout New York, including the Culpers, as he prepared to surrender Fort West Point. But not long after the October execution of Benedict's handler, the British spymaster Andre, Major Benjamin Talmadge heard from Abraham Woodhull and Robert Townsend that they were safe and sound. Luckily, the traitorous Benedict had failed to learn the names of the Culpers. Less luckily, he had made it to Redcoat territory, and he was in charge of hunting spies in New York City. He needed to be eliminated. On October 14th, George Washington met with 24-year-old Major Harry Lee, a legendary cavalry commander in the Continental Army. Washington's face was a stoic mask of quiet rage as he explained the special operation he had for Lee, the kidnapping and public execution of Benedict Arnold. Washington calmly laid out the objective. Lee was to find a trustworthy subordinate to send into enemy territory. Washington was not to know the man's name, and the man was not to know the order came from Washington. This way, if the undercover operation went south, there was no trail back to the spymaster. Lee saluted and left the commander-in-chief's tent. He went straight to John Champ, a quiet but fierce 20-something enlisted man whom Lee said had remarkable intelligence. Champ's mission was simple. Pretend to be a rebel deserter and head for British territory. Then, locate Arnold, capture him, and get him to Patriot agents waiting in New Jersey. But the most important objective of the mission was to deliver Benedict unharmed. This was not to be a quiet assassination. The traitor was to publicly hang from a Patriot noose. Late on the night of October 20th, Lee gave Champ some official documents to provide as proof of his desertion. But beyond that, Lee gave his young soldier no other assistance. Champ had to appear legitimate, and thus he had to get through the American checkpoints and into British territory without any help. Champ nodded his assent and disappeared into the forest. 
A few days later, one of Lee's men reported that a patrol had come upon a lone soldier in the forest who had abruptly ridden off towards the Hudson River. When the patrol gave chase, the soldier leapt into the water and swam for a nearby British gunboat. The Redcoats fired on the chasing patrol and they retreated. The British pulled the swimming man aboard. Lee thanked the soldier for his report and dismissed him. Then he smiled. Champ had made it into British territory. Meanwhile, Champ was brought before the British commander in New York City, General Clinton. He played the role of deserter perfectly, convincing Clinton that there were more disaffected rebels just waiting to leave Washington's army. Clinton bought the story hook, line, and sinker and told Champ he had just the person for him to meet, another recent deserter, General Benedict Arnold. Champ couldn't believe his luck. He went to visit the traitorous Benedict and reasserted his intentions to fight for England. Benedict, for his part, was overjoyed to hear that Washington was losing more men. He made Champ a sergeant and gave him a new red coat for his uniform. Champ was in. The mission was going perfectly. But Champ couldn't simply knock Benedict over the head, dump him on a horse, and ride to New Jersey. He had to corner the general when he was alone, then take him. So for several weeks, Champ monitored Benedict's habits and routines. He noticed that Benedict liked to take a late-night walk in his garden before bed. Benedict's house bordered an alley that was usually deserted. Champ saw his opportunity. He sent word to Lee to have his men in New Jersey get ready. Then, one night in early December 1780, Champ waited in the alley with a gag and a club. But Benedict never appeared, and his house was completely dark all night. Champ waited well past midnight before he abandoned his plan, confused at Benedict's abrupt disappearance. The next morning, he discovered that Benedict had been transferred to Virginia. But that wasn't the worst part. Since Champ was officially serving under Benedict, it meant Champ was being transferred to Virginia too. Meanwhile, Lee's men reported that Champ had never shown for their rendezvous. In fact, it seemed the young soldier had vanished into the rank and file of the Redcoat Army. Months went by, and Washington dispatched two more men to try and kidnap Benedict. But neither could get close to the general. The Culper Ring couldn't discover any intelligence about Champ's whereabouts. And Benedict was still free, leading his British soldiers into battles in Virginia. It wasn't until the spring of 1781 that an exhausted and bedraggled Champ appeared in Lee's continental encampment. He told Lee that he had deserted, for real this time, when the Redcoats confronted the rebels in Virginia. It had taken Champ months to make his way back to New York. Now, Benedict Arnold was too well guarded for a kidnapping plot to succeed. George Washington was frustrated. He wanted his traitor in hand, but he couldn't stew on the problem. He had a war to fight, and after all, once they won, 
Benedict would receive his comeuppance. To win the war, Washington turned to one final bit of vital intelligence from the Culper Ring, a British Navy codebook. As the summer of 1781 arrived, the British Army was divided between New York and Virginia. The commander of the Virginia Redcoats, General Cornwallis, was expecting reinforcements on a fleet of ships arriving from England. However, when the English fleet arrived, they found the American and French fleet waiting for them. A fierce battle ensued, during which the French seemed to know exactly what the British ships were going to do. This was because the French could read the British signal flags. This flag code was broken thanks to James Rivington, the spying tavern owner in New York City. Though the mission is still largely shrouded in mystery, many historians believe that at some point in 1781, Rivington got his hands on the British Navy signal code book. His tavern was often filled with naval officers, so it is easy to see how a drunken sailor might forget his satchel, or Rivington might sneak a copy of a code book away from a distracted officer. In any case, Rivington passed the book on to one of Washington's agents, who delivered it to the French admiral in charge of the fleet. With the signal book, the French were able to help Washington surround Cornwallis, who surrendered his army at Yorktown on October 19, 1781. It was the last major battle of the war. The Culper Ring had successfully aided Washington in breaking the resolve of the British army. The Redcoat generals were unwilling to continue the fight against the scrappy colonials, who seemed to often be one step ahead with vital intelligence. Rivington's codebook mission was simply the culmination of years of espionage. By 1783, King George was ready to relent. The colonies were free, and the United States of America was born. The Culper Ring did leave one bow untied. They never caught Benedict Arnold. He fled the United States and returned to England, but things didn't go well for him there. He continued to fail in his business ventures, and his name lived on as shorthand for betrayal. Even amongst the Brits, his betrayal had aided. The Culper Ring's members, on the other hand, were rewarded for their devotion to the Patriot cause. When Washington finally returned to New York City on November 25, 1783, huge crowds of cheering patriots greeted him. But the famous general turned away from the crowds to make an unlikely stop. He visited a tavern owned by a well-known British loyalist, James Rivington. The commander-in-chief asked for a moment alone with Rivington, Major Talmadge, who was part of Washington's victorious entourage, obliged the request. Washington and Rivington went into a back room and had a quiet conversation. Then Washington left, and Rivington gave him a grateful wave. Talmadge only noticed later that the bag of gold Washington had been carrying was gone. Washington always paid his debts and he had been deeply indebted to Rivington, a prized agent of the Culper Ring. 
George Washington was officially finished as a spy master, and Talmadge disbanded the Culper Ring with little fanfare. After all, even the Commander-in-Chief hadn't known the real names of the Culper agents, and all the men wanted to do now was put the war and espionage behind them. At a lunch ceremony on December 4, 1783, Washington announced his retirement and return to Mount Vernon. Talmadge left New York City a few days later and retired to Long Island. But their paths would cross again. George Washington wasn't able to stay retired for very long. On April 30, 1789, he returned to New York City, which was now the capital of the new nation. Though he was still the commander-in-chief, he was no longer General Washington. Now he was President Washington. Almost exactly a year later, on April 22, 1790, the first American president took a brief tour of Long Island and stayed at a tavern in the small town of Setauket. He spent that night dining with old friends, though he never told anyone the names of the men he was visiting. But the Culper Ring had been founded in Setauket, and the president's time was too valuable now to spend talking all night with just anyone. The old spymaster had returned to the birthplace of his infamous espionage network and spent a night saying a proper goodbye. Goodbye didn't mean forgotten, though. The ciphers, invisible inks, forgery techniques, and double-agent gambits used by the Culper Ring went down in espionage history. Every subsequent American intelligence agency studied their techniques and added to them, the Culper Ring was so successful in its clandestine operations that historians still uncover previously unknown documents and missions that were kept secret by the Ring. The Culper Ring was so successful in its clandestine operations that historians still uncover previously unknown documents and missions that were kept secret by the Ring. But the legacy of George Washington and his spies was most eloquently summarized by one of his enemies, Major George Beckwith. The Major was the head of the British intelligence network in America at the end of the war, and he allegedly wrote, Washington didn't really outfight the British, he simply outspied us. Thank you for listening to Espionage. We'll be back Friday with a new episode. For more information on the Culper Ring, amongst the many sources we used, we found Washington's Spies by Alexander Rose extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Espionage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Espionage, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Espionage on Spotify, just open the app and type Espionage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another deep dive into the world of clandestine operation. Espionage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. 
Sound design by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Espionage was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Carter Roy. 